You're listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book. Hello, this is the Social Justice Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Sperling, and today I'm joined by Dahlia Israel for a conversation about sexual violence. My name is Dahlia Israel. I use she, her pronouns. I am an uninvited settler on these lands here, first generation. Um, I am a mom, a partner, um, and I think a community advocate at heart. Um, and I have the privilege of living on the unceded Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam people down in what's often referred to as South Vancouver. Um, and I've been at Salal for many, many years. I have the privilege of being the executive director now, but also started as a volunteer on our crisis line back in 2002. Thank you so much for joining today. I'm looking yeah. forward to the discussion. It's obviously a very important topic, and we've had some conversations about this in season one. So mm-hmm. I'm excited to carry this on and find out more about what your organization does. And on that note, the website for Salal states that you support survivors and shift society. Yes. And I want to talk about what both of those missions look like. So what supports do you provide uh, survivors of sexual violence with? So that mission for us is really important. Um, I think as an organization that aspires to be feminist and anti-oppressive and decolonizing. It's really important that we recognize that support services are not enough, that we can't, I often say we can't just bandage people up and throw them back out into the broken world that Mm -hmm. allowed harm to happen in the first place. So yes, we definitely want to meet survivors where they're at with support services. And we offer kind of what we refer to as wraparound services. So a crisis line that's available across the province and across Canada. We have a toll-free number that people internationally can call, and that can support people who have experienced sexual harm, um, but also family members, friends, educators. You know, we have working professionals that call and ask how to support. So that's available 24-7. We have a text and chat support line that's kind of attached to the crisis line. And then we have more on-the-ground services. So we do hospital accompaniments to um, Vancouver General Hospital, UBC Urgent Care, and that's for folks who want to access post-sexual assault care. Um, that can look really different for everybody. It can be forensic evidence collection, but it can also just be a health checkup um, in kind of the immediate time frame, um, so up to a week after. Or to get access to post-exposure prophylaxis or STI prevention meds, um, the morning after pill, all of that kind of stuff. And then we have some programs in-house. So we have what we refer to as a victim services program. I know that that doesn't mean a lot um, to people. It's kind of a contract name. Um, But it's really a systems navigation program. So people who are wanting and curious about reporting options, um, people who don't want to engage in the carceral system can access third-party reporting or bad date reporting. And then we have counseling and community circles. So uh, one-to-one counseling, support groups, and then some specific groups for Indigenous folks um, that are led and supported by elders in community. And we have um, counseling that is community-driven for queer and trans folks as well that's kind of been specifically kind of nurtured and directed by community. And then we have a reimagining justice program 
Um, so for people that don't want to engage in the carceral system, but want to kind of look at what accountability might look like um, for the person that's harmed them, but also having community goals um, to make some changes to shift perhaps some of the conditions that allowed sexual harm to happen in their lives. Um, and then we do all of our other bigger social justice pieces. So education and um, lots of stuff that we're building around how to support organizations who have previously been women's organizations to be trans inclusive. Um, so there's that shift society piece there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then historically, I've done a lot of work with kind of supporting carceral systems to lower their barriers so that survivors can access them if they choose. Um, but also just to do law reform. Um, we've had the opportunity to intervene on a bunch of cases um, that have been nationwide. So I didn't realize how broad that is. <laughs> like that's obviously a very long list of things that yeah. your organization does, but also yeah. you mentioned that some of these services are international, yeah. even or national. And yeah. uh, that's that's really interesting because I, I sort of thought about the organization as being a little bit more local, obviously yeah. with those transports to hospital. You can, right. You're not doing those abroad, but yeah. how much of the work that you do is national or international? So I think that because we have such a big university community here, there's oftentimes a situation where somebody is a student at UBC or a student at SFU and they're an international student and a family member has maybe found out um, that they were assaulted in Vancouver. So we've had, you know, dad's call from France or, um, parents who have been, you know, in other parts of the United States um, call. And so it's, I think it's hard to tell, but there's certainly a number of our callers on the crisis line that are calling because loved ones um, have been impacted by sexual violence locally. Right. Yeah. And one of the uh, terms that you use on the website is survivor-centered. Can you explain what that means to be survivor-centered? Yeah. So I think in our world, Perhaps more so prior to Me Too and and all of the kind of very cultural tipping point moments we've had in the past decade. We talked a lot about rape myths, um, a lot about um, kind of blaming survivors for experiencing violence, what often gets referred to as rape culture these days. We feel like it's a pretty radical place to just center survivors as the knowers of their truth. Um, and so we are not investigators. We are not collecting um, evidence to measure whether somebody has experienced the thing that they're coming to us. We just really want to meet people where they're at and honor them as the experts of their lives. You know, that's a really, really important piece for us. And historically, you know, the carceral system being the only system that people could report to, that system is offender focused. And so, you know, once somebody reports to police, the whole thing then takes on a life of its own and it becomes very much about how the person who's caused harm is going to be dealt with through the system. And what inevitably ends up happening is the person that's been harmed completely disappears from the picture. Mm -hmm. So for us to be survivor centered is to really imagine with that person about what it is that they need. Um, in these days, in these moments after they've been assaulted, maybe years later, um, to really put their needs at the center and allow for them to kind of dream about what's possible for their healing 
um, but also for accountability. And right. yeah. And yeah, I haven't had to deal with police, fortunately, around sexual violence, but I, I have had someone stalking and harassing me, and I had to call mm. the police about that, thinking at the time that that would be useful, I yes. suppose. Yes. And I ended up having an officer come to my house, and I, I was uh, running for a political campaign at the time, and yeah. he said, well, you're just going to have to deal with that if you want to be involved in politics. Mm. And my MLA said, that's not right. No. You should never have to deal with, with things like that. But yeah. that, I'm guessing that that's a fairly common experience. You sort of get brushed aside whenever you try to bring things up to the police. Yeah. I think it's survivors report really a varied experience. Um, and I think no two, no two circumstances are the same, which is really right. scary, you know? Um, and I think inevitably that whole system is meant to punish people who have caused harm or who have broken laws. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, and this is a bit of like mental gymnastics, I often call it, um, sexual violence is considered a crime against the state. Uh, it's not oh. actually considered a crime against the human. Um, and so, you know, a survivor's place within the criminal legal system is as a witness. And so if you're a witness, if you imagine that within a different context in a car accident context. The character is just being destroyed. You're, and you're just a party. Like you're just kind of like a player within this larger kind of situation that's unfolding. Right. Uh, you're not the center. You know, it isn't about you. It's about somebody else entirely. And I think when you've had your bodily autonomy taken from you, when somebody has taken power away from you, experiencing that trying to find like your puzzle piece within this system that has an entire life of its own mm -hmm. can be really a lot, even if it's a good experience. And so, yeah, I think in a world that has historically told survivors that they don't deserve care or respect or dignity, it's just a pretty radical thing to say, like here you're at the center. Right. You know? It is such a vulnerable thing to try yeah. to share with, with anyone. Yeah. So, you, you, I would imagine, really want to know that someone is going to be there to support you and yeah. not just treat you, like you said, as a, a witness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think we really want people to feel like we've got their backs, like um, we don't know everything um, and we're all living in this kind of soup together, but we will always do our best to to ensure that they're rights are being upheld, that they have good information and that information that we do have, that we're able to share that with them to empower them and, and make them feel like they have more information um, as they navigate all of the things. Right. Yeah. And another term that uh, I see on the website quite often is feminist. Mm -hmm. And that, that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. <laughs> it sure um, does. Yeah. Especially as, as a trans person, we hear about <laughs> TERFs, trans-exclusionary yeah. radical feminists, or yes. uh, within the sex work community, you hear about SWERFs, the sex yeah. worker exclusionary radical feminists. Yeah. So when you're using that term, what does it mean to you and to your organization? Yeah. So I think intersectional feminism is kind of something that's more widely known these days and certainly something that we align our values with. We believe that trans, we are all standing on the shoulders of trans folks, um, that truly, if we look at the feminist movement, that it is trans and queer people who started our movement. Um, 
and that gets disappeared a lot, but that is due to the professionalization of our sector. And if we look historically, it is, you know, trans women of color, truthfully, that started um, the response to to people being alienated by society and started groups and, and conversations and collectives and activist communities that were responding to harm. So I think for us, feminism means um, rejecting the notion that um, cis men should be at the top of the food chain and that everybody else uh, should suffer. Uh, I think it means for us that we're also interrogating other systems of domination. um, And that includes like every single access point that gets um, less and less equity uh, in the pie of life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's where we lead from um, for sure. Right. And when you talk about cis men not being at the top as an organization that supports people who've had to deal with sexual violence, Mm -hmm. is that something that would apply to cis men as well? Or is that a group of people that you wouldn't support through, um, their own experiences with your organization and you'd send them to a different one. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think the position that we take is that we absolutely uh, accept the reality that cis men are impacted by sexual harm. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly cis boys, you know, um, and we also hold on to our analysis around gender um, that there is something systemically happening where uh, in a patriarchal society, people are not valued equitably across the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that, by its very nature, puts targets on people's back to be exposed to sexual violence more. Right. And so we don't pretend to live in a post-gender world, even though... Um, you know, we hope for that, that that's our ultimate vision, that everybody um, would be living a life without sexual violence, regardless of their gender. Um, but I think when we're thinking about how we provide services and our analysis around that, that we do want to hold on to that analysis. So we would support cis men locally to access BC male survivors. Um, and on the island, there's also the Victoria um trauma center for men. Right. So there are some organizations that work with us. Yes. Yeah. And I think that those folks get specialized services for them in those spaces. And, um, we have relationships with those organizations and have good referrals. Um, but yeah, we, we serve all marginalized genders. We've been seeing some protests against queer people lately and the acceptance of two-spirit trans and non-binary folks within mm-hmm. crisis services has been somewhat controversial, let's say, locally. Mm-hmm. There's a certain shelter that was discriminating against trans people, yes. subsequently had their funding removed from them by mm-hmm. the city. So why is it important for your organization to state your acceptance of queer folks and have you had to deal with blowback as a result of doing that? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think, as I just said, the the Venn diagram (laughs) is very much overlapping in our view. Mm -hmm. Um, And we believe that 
you know, trans women, like I said, have always been part of our movements. Um, so, and they are at highest risk, um, of being targeted for sexual harm. We know that because transphobia is so ever present, um, in our society. So that has been our position. We, until 2018, we served cis and trans women only. In 2018, we opened up our service user population to include all trans folks because it no longer, if we were rejecting, if we're rejecting biological determinism, um, and we understand under patriarchy that it's not just women who are experiencing gender marginalization. It no longer made sense to us as an organization to not be supporting trans guys and non-binary folks and two-spirit people to have specialized services for them. And so that was really important to us. Um, and we also needed to do a lot of repair. Like you said, just having feminism in our, you know, the, our values made a lot of people feel very uncomfortable. And right. so we, needed to, clarify we needed to clarify it. Yeah. We needed to clarify. We talked to a lot of folks in our first year in 2017, we were actually doing internal facing work to train staff. We hired trans folks, um, that supported the process before we kind of went external. We did a lot of work internally. And since then we've been working on a blueprint for previously women's or feminist organizations who want to widen their service user population to understand all of the things that are required. So we have a workshop called Don't Flip the Switch. We've got you know, support where I go and talk to other executive directors and boards about what they need to do governance wise, because it's not just like adjusting something on your website. It's, you know, your benefits packages. It's the way that you provide support to people on the ground who are maybe deciding to transition as you hire them. It is about, you know, our staff unionized at the time because of job security and needing to like point out the things that were not working for trans people that we needed to change and the fear of, of being a whistleblower. Um, all of these things are kind of in the ecosystem. Sort of taking it from what might be perceived as performative allyship and, and doing the work to make sure it's actual allyship. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think so. Plus just having services that actually get to the needs of the people you serve. Right. Um, so our reimagining justice program also came out of doing this work because, you know, our staff were like, we're not going to call trans people are not going to call police on other trans people. But we want accountability. So like, <laughs> what are you going to do? Because all of the victim services and all of the programming that we had were very much imagined within the kind of ideal of white cis hetero Right. Have you had blowback for, for taking those positions? Do you have people in the community that are criticizing you for supporting queer folks? No. No. We thought, um, and I don't think we were ever worried about that. I think when we put out the apology to sex workers, I think is when we anticipated the most blowback and we were... And, and what was that about? So, um, Part of the work that we had to do when we were starting to talk to trans folks about what a service would look like that would feel affirming and life-saving 
and something that they would access. We basically just heard from community that until we worked out our stance and shit about sex work, mm-hmm. um, we're not even going to talk to you. Right. Um, you got to sort that out first. That was, I think, unanticipated. Again, when you go to change this one thing, you think, yeah, we'll just change this one thing. But of course, we're not single issue people. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there are always those intersections. Of course. I mean, we talk about it all the time on the podcast. You yeah. brought up intersectional feminism. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you pull one thread, and there's going to be another part of your fabric that you definitely need to look at. So we had to go back and realize that a position that we had took prior to this, uh, which was an abolitionist perspective, uh, was not going to work for community and by taking that position we really had to be accountable to community around the fact that if we trust people with their lives and we want to center survivors that we have to listen to sex workers about what they need and want and we hadn't been doing that. So what are you doing now to support sex workers in your organization? Yeah so we put out that apology 2019, I want to say, um, and part of our work was to take a pause to figure our stuff out again. Um, and so now we have bad date reports available on a crisis line at the hospital in person. Um, we have partnerships with WISH, so we have staff members that from Salal that actually go down to WISH to support people if they want to do a bad date report, if they want to get support around sexual violence in their life. We have an internal Red Umbrella Committee, and I think what we've heard the most from sex working organizations across Canada is that they really want us not to like have a specialized program and not to take that stuff on because I think sex worker organizations are already wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. But really be in spaces, in feminist spaces, to speak back to um, how harmful um, feminism has been to sex workers and to share our learnings. Um, and so that's what we've been doing. We've spoken publicly um, at national symposiums. We're in relationship also with Butterfly out of Toronto. Ellen comes to our team to talk. She calls on us to be, you know, front and center in spaces um, to talk about our accountability. And yeah, we're we're listening. We're always listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another aspect of the services that you offer it relates to missing and murdered Indigenous women supporting Indigenous people girls, two-spirit people, and you talk about supporting decolonization. So when you're doing, I think this relates mostly to your counseling programs, if I'm I'm not mistaken. So when it comes to that, how do you make sure that the counselors are informed about Indigenous experiences, Indigenous cultures, or are you making sure that Indigenous people are involved in the organization to guide you through that process? How's that all? It's kind of everything. Indigenous folks um, inside the organization. We work with 
elders that are connected to us. Uh, we have a two-spirit elder. We have elders of old women's teachings. Um, we're in relationships with indigenous groups, kind of outside, and we support local folks. So we're pretty much we listen to community as much as we can. So last year with all of the young women and two-spirit people that went missing locally. We were called on to um, show up to vigils and hold space for people. Um, we, prior to the pandemic, did a lot of community ceremonies, so cedar brushing and pipe ceremonies for community. Um, historically, we did four rounds of smudging the downtown east side and four rounds of round dances. Um, and we're hoping this year that we can move back to doing that ceremony and community as well. So that sort of was put on hold because of COVID? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just um, actually, I think the day that the WHO made the announcement that COVID was like a pandemic, we were supposed to have 40 elders doing the pipe ceremony and I had to, to make the decision to call the whole thing off. Debating constantly, like, is this premature? Is this here? But it felt like, man, I don't want to have 40 elders, uh, precious knowledge keepers in a room and, and missing. So we had to postpone that. Um, we're part of the Memorial March Committee. Um, we take part in you know, October 4th gatherings at City Hall and yeah, we're always trying. Um, our one of our board members is that just stepped down. Uh, Priscilla Olivo oh. did beautiful um, art uh, with a graffiti artist and donated six of her original pieces for fundraising. And I'm just finding out that I know a bunch of your board members. <laughs> Priscilla, I know from um, Tri Cities Politics. Awesome. Yeah. She's amazing. She and, uh, and she's Barbara Finley's on your board. She's in hospital, is it? No, at law school. Law school, yes, that's right. Yeah, that's okay. But she's not in hospital. No. Yeah. So you have a great group of people then that involved with the organization. Yeah. Speaking of which, we've talked a lot about things that your organization does, mm-hmm. has done. What are you hoping for the future of SLA? Well, I think we are growing. Uh, I think the need has never been higher you know I often have been finding myself calling what we're seeing now the cascading effects of COVID um, our wait list was down to a year and a half a year ago and it's at two and a half years now oh, um, these are people who are looking for counseling services yes. yeah so our victim services team is so busy um, but they don't have the luxury of putting people on a wait list because things are moving, right? It's kind of a crisis response team. But yeah, it's the need is, is tremendous. And I think we're just starting to see a level of violence that people were experiencing during the pandemic. People are starting to come forward and talk about those things now. So the future is, well, I think making sure, A, that people are aware of who we are because we did just rebrand. And so elevating our name is going to be really important in the next little while. And then I think just telling our story. Because um, we've got some exciting things on the horizon. We're definitely trying to grow to meet the needs. 
And speaking of needing to grow to meet the needs and, and having that backlog, one of the questions I always ask on these podcasts is what our audience can do to help. Mm -hmm. So in this case, what can our audience do to help your organization? Yeah, well, we always train new volunteers. Um, if people want to volunteer on the crisis line and we kind of call it the mutual aid side of our organization is really just showing up for community. Um, it's a really beautiful way. I'm a little bit biased because I was a volunteer. Um, I often refer to it as like my cliff jumping experience, um, just being in a community of people that care so deeply about the same things. And so there's that. Uh, we're also just about to expand the volunteer training to people who want to do fundraising, volunteering for us or outreach because we want more ambassadors out there. So that's another good opportunity. But if you're not interested in doing support work, um, but interested in like amplifying the message of the organization, we're always looking for board members, mm -hmm. <laughs> so people can join the board if they're interested in governance um, and being community to, again, tell people about us. And we've got a huge fundraising campaign, so people can also share our campaign, share on socials. Um, we've got a really good audience on Instagram these days. Um, we do some pretty awesome posts there. So just being part of the community, I think is really important as a local organization that we've just celebrated 40 years this year. Wow, congratulations. Um, part of the rebrand was also interviewing our founders, some of our founders about just their process of like watching the organization develop um, to where we're at. So are some of them still involved? Um, they are close. Mm -hmm. They are close, um, but not involved. Right. You know, be a long time to be involved in something. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, Mary Lou Sims is like one of the you know the people that is part of our founding group that um, you know I know that I can call on anytime and, and she'll be there. Um, Megan Ellis is a local lawyer that like still refers people to us. Um, so yeah. Amazing that they're still so active as well, maybe not in the organization, but yes. in doing important work in the community. They have huge lives. Yeah. And that brings me to my last question for you. We've uh, talked about quite a few different things so far, and I think it's been interesting. I hope our audience has gained some valuable information from it, but is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you think is really important to bring up before we wrap things up? We've got some really exciting things that are unfolding. I think we're constantly trying to kind of decenter all of the things that for many, many years we were centering. So um, we're doing some really cool stuff for black survivors coming up and having, um, so we've had a Remembering Our Ancestors series for Indigenous folks. Um, we're going to be launching that for black folks really soon. So about telling people's history? It's, I think, reclamation of healing practices. So remembering our ancestors for the indigenous folks has been like using traditional dance to heal. Zoe Roy, who's a, an indigenous land poet and artist, um, does like storytelling and reclaiming your story through poetry. Um, 
Washington, we have some elders who do like women's teachings and two-spirit teachings. Um, we've also got somebody who does like beading and traditional like connecting back to culture as a healing practice. And so we're going to be doing similar things um, for black survivors as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to meet you, to chat with you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been valuable. And uh, this has been a social justice podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Berlin. I've been joined today by Dahlia Israel. And I look forward to talking to you in the next one. You've been listening to a social justice podcast hosted by Nicholas Sperling, brought to you by The Flag Shop, and inspired by a social justice coloring book.